When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Building Better Business podcast is the best place to learn how to take your business to the next level. It's no longer enough to earn good profits. You need to develop a network of connections as well as use all types of marketing to your advantage that will put you over the edge. Hosted by me, Steve Eschbach, a financial executive with decades of experience in dealing with businesses and business people, we'll learn how this all comes together. Join me and my expert guests as we delve into the many facets of owning the business and how to become a good, caring business owner. Listen how making a difference in your community can attract all sorts of clientele, which in turn will build you a better business. Greetings of the day, everyone. This is Steve Eschbach, your host to Building Better Businesses, the podcast here that you have been uh, watching, I hope, uh, many times over. I am the president of Transworld Business Advisors here in Naperville. I'm one of seven uh, Chicagoland uh, business brokers here uh, under the Transworld umbrella. Transworld is the largest business brokerage in the world, and we are the fastest growing business brokerage in the world. We cater to uh, small to medium-sized businesses, and we uh, assist business owners confidentially sell and match them with qualified buyers. I'm delighted to bring you another broadcast here of Building Better Businesses, this time with a colleague in the investor relations arena, both uh, Dan Aldridge and I uh, had done investor relations for a number of publicly traded companies. Uh, we'll learn a little bit more about that from Dan's perspective in a moment. But first of all, Dan, I want to thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the show. And uh, tell us a little bit about who you are. Oh, before we do that, I have to make this disclosure. Dan and I were partners with his firm, Asbury Investor Relations, a short while ago. We have both parted our ways. He stayed where he is. I moved back on to Transworld and have chosen a different path at the moment. But Dan, tell us a little bit about Asbury IR and, and a little bit about yourself as well. Yeah, thanks, Steve. So thanks for having us on the podcast. Really appreciate the opportunity. Um, so again, so Dan Aldridge, uh, I'm the uh, CEO slash founder of Asbury Investor Relations, and we are a boutique investor relations firm located in Atlanta, Georgia. We mainly focus on small and mid-cap companies. So the way to think about that is kind of companies with a market cap, you know, somewhere under $5 billion. And we help them with their investor relations strategy. And that kind of covers everything from special projects to full outsourcing of investor relations functions and processes to full-on ESG strategy work. And we, we've gotten involved in several different sectors, mainly in consumer industrial energy at this point but we'll be getting into tech and healthcare uh, later in the year. And we also uh, have branched out into catering to the retail investor over the last three months um, with the phenomenon that we've seen there, which I'm sure we'll probably get into a little bit. And then prior to starting the firm, uh, sort of Steve mentioned, held several investor relations roles at various public companies, uh, all different sizes, you know, all the way from the, the mega cap of the Home Depots, you know, down to the small micro small caps of the uh, mall-based retailer express. So with that, I'll kind of pause and turn it back to you, Steve. Yeah, so you mentioned a, an acronym called ESG, and some of our audience members may not be familiar with that. So you want to expand a little bit on ESG? Yeah, so ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. 
And the framework has been around for a while. It actually used to be referred to as CSR, or Corporate Sustainability Reporting. And you know, ESG has kind of taken on greater importance over the last, call it really, three to five years. You know, as more companies start to focus more holistically on their strategies and how they impact, you know, the broader communities and the environments you know, in which they live and work and serve. And, you know, a lot of this you know, had been going on, you know, for years and, and under different umbrellas and in different areas. So, you know, most companies you know, have a philanthropic arm you know, where they give back to the communities, whether that's through financial donations, you know, or time. You know, they also, a lot of companies have sections around what they do to support different initiatives within their communities, uh, within the environment. And then, you know, also on the G side, you know, you have shareholder activities. You think of corporate go- corporate governance. All of these have become much more important over the last three to five years. And really the big companies of the world have really already started moving down this path. It's really the smaller companies now, you know, who are realizing that, you know, they too need to start getting behind this and really amplifying some of their strategies. So it's um, interesting that you mentioned this, Dan, that publicly traded companies in the billion dollar range or even bigger or smaller, uh, that community involvement, that kind of uh, focus on being involved with where you are, being a uh, environmental steward, if you will, that's critically important no matter what size company it is, whether it's a $100,000 a year company revenue-wise or it's a you know, one or $2 billion company revenue-wise. It seems like people who are investing in those types, uh, types of company do care about that. Yeah, well, and it goes kind of back to the you know, the title of the podcast, right? Building better businesses, and you know, one way to do that is through talent acquisition. And when you look at you know what's driven the change in the ESG space over the last call it year, year and a half in the United States, quite frankly, a lot of it's been around you know social change um, that was driven by social unrest here in the United States last year, and you know a lot of companies, you know, smaller companies. You know, hadn't taken a position there. And I think a lot of them are viewing this more as a proactive uh, measure and to, to be a differentiator when it comes to, you know, hiring talent, you know, recruiting, retaining, and, and really separating themselves from other companies. And so more than ever, you have HR departments and heads of HR, you know, who are leading some of the initiatives in the ESG space, you know, especially around S. And, you know, as you well know, you know, if you don't have the right people running your organization, it's not going to be successful. Absolutely. So to take that one step further, and you and I both have investor relations experience over the past, like you said, three to five years, many corporations are, in fact, dedicating resources and effort into developing a separate ESG report that is separate and distinct from the annual report that you and I are both familiar with. Is that correct? Yeah, they are. And some of them are integrated. And you're starting to see more of that as we go forward, kind of the integrating integrated framework from a reporting standpoint. But today, most companies separate out the two, and they either have a CSR report that they issue kind of injunction with the annual report, or they issue it together as a single report. You've also seen the, the trend really over the last year, year and a half to move to fully interactive uh, websites versus kind of standalone PDFs. So you can get more interaction, you know, more infographic type material you know, as things are going along. And I, and I think you'll continue to see that, but the trend has definitely shifted towards digital. And the other big trend, and you kind of hit the nail on the head is, you know, you don't have to be a billion dollar company, you know, to, to have an impact in the ESG space, right? You can be a, a small private company. You can employ 10 people. 
you know, but at the end of the day, everybody wants to work for a company that they're proud to work for. And whether that's company is 10 employees, 100 employees, or 100,000 employees, you know, to the extent that you can do things, you know, to provide value to your employees, you know, and make it a more attractive place to work, the better that's going to be for you, again, whether you're a small company or a big company. And while you may not be Home Depot and you may not be able to put in all the processes and procedures, you know, you can definitely put in initiatives at smaller scale that will have an impact for your community and, and your associates. So that's good to know. Thank you so much for that, Dan. Now, you, like many of my other guests, are a former corporate executive officer. Uh, you worked in investor relations, as did I. Now you own your own little company on your own. You have a consulting firm that's kind of evolved from your past experience in investor relations. But we're going to rewind the videotape much, much further. So let's go back to your childhood. Where were you born and raised? And what kind of childhood did you have? What kind of parental and family influence did you have while you were on your tricycle on your hometown street? Probably back then, I don't know if you were thinking about investor relations or ESP. No. But what was going through <laughs> your mind when you were growing up and uh, how did that evolve when you went to high school, college and where you are today? Yeah, so uh, very kind of very diverse childhood, a lot of different experiences, a lot of travel. Born and raised in Athens, Georgia, uh, home of the University of Georgia, actually where I went to undergrad and, and graduate school. My father was an attorney. My mother was a teacher. And uh, being a teacher was probably the best thing I could have had as a mother because she kind of taught us everything. And she definitely believed more in a you know, hands-on experience versus kind of rote learning. And so, you know, apart from learning things, she took us everywhere. You know, we, by the time I was 18, I think I'd been to every state in the country, probably three or four different foreign countries, could speak Spanish at a pretty good clip, wasn't fluent by any means, but she exposed me to that because she lived in a lot of different countries growing up. And so that experience definitely shaped kind of uh, my career as far as, you know, wanting to do a lot of different things, you know, and then in coming out of school, you know, had no clue what investor relations was, you know, I mean, my, my degree is in accounting, I actually have a master's in, in tax accounting, which most people find uh, incredulous, uh, considering I'm more of a creative type person. Uh, but I, I never actually used the master's in tax, I've done my own taxes, that, that's about it. And then from there, got into internal audit. And, you know, that was a fascinating place to kind of cut your teeth in corporate America, because apart from investor relations, it's probably the only other department, you know, that has access to, to all the different departments in the, in the company. You know, so you really get, you know, a preview of all the things that are going on. And then with internal audit, you can see all, all, the, all the problems, you know, and understand kind of what things need to be fixed. Um, but you're working, you know, with, with a lot of the executives and officers kind of at that level. And through that, you know, just got to, to work with a lot of different, really interesting executives and kind of got tapped on the shoulders, like a lot of investor relations people uh, do. And they said, well, you can do finance and you can talk. So that, yeah. that, that's fair. Maybe you should do investor relations. And that's how I got into it. And I'd always kind of loved the, the finance analytical angle of it, but then really loved getting into the strategy and really helping the companies articulate their message and really the discourse with the investors and the analysts, you know, on either proving or disproving their investment theories, you know, on the individual companies, you know, or the industries. And I've always loved travel. And I kind of alluded to that earlier. And so investor relations, you travel a good bit too. And so it kind of uh, scratched all my, my intellectual curiosity itches. I mean, did that uh, at Home Depot, really big company, you know, was fortunate enough to be there through you know, their metamorphosis and uh, their change. I mean, when I started, not to, to scratch my back, because it was definitely not, not, not on my doing, uh, but their stock price went from $14 to $124. So I had the pleasure of being there through that. And then also through a CEO change and being able to work with investors through that. And then from there, 
had the opportunity to, to move to Chicago, to your neck of the woods, and help start an investor relations department for a smaller company, $15 million company, which kind of shows you the, the demographics, right? I mean, that's quote unquote a small company uh, in, the, in the public realm, but really more of the, the mid-cap space. And then from there, just had more opportunities and you know, just kept taking opportunities, you know, whether they were lateral transfers or promotions to, to get into different industries and just to get different exposure and different things. And so I had the opportunity to move back to Atlanta and run IR for Intercontinental Exchange or ICE, who owns uh, the New York Stock Exchange. Um, and so got heavily involved in the capital market space and really got a front row seat for all the regulatory impacts, you know, that Mifid II was going to have, that the SEC was going to have you know, on our industry. And, and that's kind of played out over the last couple of years. And, you know, you've seen a continuing deterioration of the sell side, you know, from a research perspective. And, you know, you have the rise of ESG, which we talked about, and you've got the phenomenon of active investing to passive investing. You know, you've got, I think I mentioned activism before, you know, and, and now you have retail investing, you know, that is not going anywhere. You know, and all these things, you know, aren't part and parcel, you know, to most companies' investor relations strategies. You know, so it became quickly apparent that there was going to be kind of a void in the market. Um, and so we kind of set about establishing a company that was going to be different, you know, and that was Asbury. And, you know, it was going to be based off of experience, not volume. And when you look at, you know, kind of the, the advisory space and investor relations, it's really driven by volume. And there's a couple large players and some small regional players, but for the most part, they're career consultants, you know, and career salespeople. And I've worked with every single one of them and the experiences were fine, but you on average work with a junior person, you know, that had never been in the arena, you know, and had never done the work. And so while they were good to be an extra pair of hands, they weren't rolling up their sleeves and doing the work. They weren't talking to investors. You know, they weren't holding the hands of management. You know, and what does it take to do that? It takes experience, you know? And so when I set out to make my firm, one of the, the key tenets was we need to go find people that have 20 years plus experience, you know, who have worked in multiple Fortune 500 companies, who have been directors of research, who have been investors, right? Who have the scars, um, you know, who can go to a management team with a straight face and say, I've sat, sat across the table, you know, from a Nelson Peltz, uh, you know, or another activist. And this is how we handled the situation. And so anyway, and so I actually have the least amount of experience out of anybody, uh, you know, on the team. You know, everybody else has 20, 25 years plus. And so uh, we like to tell CEOs, you know, and CEOs that we've kind of seen everything, you know, from an investor relations standpoint. You know, and if we haven't, we know somebody that has, you know, and then the other biggest, uh, you know, skill set slash experience criteria, you know, in this world is, is credibility, is trust. And, you know, that's only developed through decades you know, of working with people in the financial services world. And you, you can't get that over overnight, and, you know, or by being a salesperson. And so that, that message has definitely resonated, you know, especially coming out of COVID, you know, and so this year, you know, it's going to be a big year for us. We've done a lot, a lot more ESG projects, uh, you know, doing a lot more actually projects with larger companies. You know, I mentioned before, we started out mainly focusing on small and mid cap. But we've seen kind of the value of the experience that we offer, you know, be transferable, you know, across market caps. And when you think about ESG, when you think about, you know, retail investing, you know, all that, you know, applies across market caps, across kind of investors. And, you know, so that's the other kind of big thing that we're working on right now, you know, is really trying to figure out how do you democratize shareholder access, you know, and as an individual shareholder, how do you take control of your financial future, without depending, you know, on Wall Street banks. And that's what I've been working on for like the last three months. 
You know, your your concept here and your your philosophy is quite interesting because it applies to whatever size businesses that you're working with. So for me, I'm dealing with much, much smaller companies. We don't talk about billions. We very often get into millions, but not so much in the multi-million. Long story short, when I prepare a seller to sell his business to a prospective buyer, it's sort of like you preparing a CEO going to Wall Street and telling the investment community the story of the company. So if I understand what we've done, meaning me and you and our past, you're preparing the C-level executives to be able to respond to the questions that will likely come from Wall Street so that they can respond in a real timely manner. And that's where the relevant experience comes from. I think that's what you're saying. So tell me a little bit more about that and tell me how Asbury, you and Asbury, so you're focused in on finding those companies that need that communication skill sets that they need to provide, but they don't really spend that much time on. Is that kind of what I'm saying or what you're saying? Yeah. And when you think about why we focus on small and mid caps, right, it's where we can add the most value and where they have the biggest resource constraints. And so when you think about a big shop like a Home Depot, I mean, they have seven, eight people, you know, in their investor relations departments. When you get into the small cap world, they're lucky to have one. And usually that person, he or she is wearing multiple hats. So not only do they have investor relations, but they have FP&A, they have M&A, they have treasury, you know, they have uh, corporate communications. And so investor relations just becomes you know, this thing on the side that they have to do. And you know, a lot of it, quite frankly, is triage and it's getting through the quarterly earnings process. But what they can't do is they can't turn their investor relations department you know, into, pro, into a proactive you know, value creating department. You know, instead of just a, a cost uh, play to structure. And so what you've seen is where we can come in, we can proactively put together marketing campaigns you know, to reach out to new investors you know, that you may not have reached out to before, to reach out to new sell side analysts, to help you cultivate those relationships, um, to help that better tell your story. You know, think about things like ESG, being able to have the time to really go through you know, all of the resources and assets that you have today and telling you, you know, based off of not only our experience, but what everybody else is doing in the industry, where you rack and stack against everybody else and how you can move the needle. And so it's all about adding extra value, you know, to these companies, you know, that just don't have the resources to do it today. And, you know, in the large cap space, when you've got that seven or eight people, you know, you have the extra bodies to be able to come in and do some of that work. But then again, it goes back to, you know, you have to have the experience, you know, and the trust and credibility to be able to do that work. And without that, I can't go with a straight face to a CFO or CEO and say, yeah, we can come in and do this work without having that decade plus experience, you know, in the industry, you know, knowing those investors and knowing the analysts. So, Dan, what are the three top questions you will go into a uh, prospective client of yours and uh, ask them these three questions and figure out how best you can help them out? What are, I guess, what would be the, the three common elements that seems to be lacking in a uh, small to mid-sized publicly traded company? Yeah, for, I mean, first and foremost, you know, is, is what story are you trying to tell? And I think that goes with, you know, why are you a public company? And, you know, what you've seen over the last kind of 10 years and even more so now with the SPAC craze, you know, is a lot of companies going public for necessarily the, the wrong reasons or going accelerated at, at a certain time. And so a lot of these small cap companies, while they're really good at their operations, you know, running their business strategy, you know, they don't have a proactive strategy from a communication standpoint to reach out to the investment community to let them know how they're different. 
you know, how they differentiate and what has changed for the small cap companies over the last, like I said, three to five years is the number of people that are telling their story. And you know, before 2018, when MIFID came into existence, a lot of these companies depended almost exclusively, you know, on the sell side analysts to help them tell their stories, to help them, you know, get introduced to investors, to provide all the logistics around those meetings, uh, because the companies didn't have the resources to do it. And now the sell side, because of MIFID II and other regulations, aren't being compensated to do that anymore. And so what happens? They stop doing it. And so now, you know, these small cap companies are in a world where no one's telling their story and they're competing with thousands of other equities. On any given day, the average PM is looking at a basket of 100 plus stocks and they're getting inundated with inbounds from pitches from companies of all sizes. And so you've got to have a good pitch that sticks out. And if you don't and you're not proactive, it's like a tree falling in the woods and there's no one there to hear it. And, you know, I can't tell you how many PMs, you know, tell us that. And, and one of the services that we provide for a lot of these small companies is basically acting as the sell side to the sell side, you know, and keeping that dialogue open. But it goes back to your, your question on, you know, what is the first question? It's what story are you trying to tell? And what's the ultimate goal in this? And it seems kind of simple, but most companies can't tell you that. You know, and, you know, if you're, if you have a new investor that can own 10% of your stock, you've never met with them before, you're meeting with them tomorrow, you know, you got 10 minutes. It's like, what's the first five minutes of that meeting, you know, that are going to get them hooked? What's the sales pitch? And, and I think that's the problem with too many investor relations strategies today, especially for small cap companies, is they're not sales pitches. You know, they don't look at it that way. And you have to be, you have to be aggressive because at the end of the day, you know, you're a product. And you're competing against many other products, which are other equities that are out there and kind of go on with the days of just being able to put up good results and the investors will follow. That's just simply not the case, you know, especially in the small cap world. So that's question number one, which I took a long time to answer, uh, but it's the most important question, you know, which is kind of, you know, what story are, are you trying to tell? But then the second question, you know, after that you know, is, is what's the time period? What is the time horizon, you know, that you're telling the story? Because most of the stories have an arc, and at the end of that arc is some kind of long-term goal. So whether that's a, an operating margin goal, an EPS goal, a, a revenue goal, you need to have something that's measurable, right, that you can talk to every single quarter that the street can hold you accountable to. And so that's kind of question number two, and, and it goes kind of back to the sticky question that we talk about in best relations all the time, which is guidance, you know, and trying to understand if I'm going to be measured by a metric, you know, I need to think long and hard about that. And I need to make sure that, you know, it's in my control and I need to pick the two or three metrics that matter most to my company and to the investors and not boil the ocean, you know, because the other issue that companies fall into is it's overflow of information. And I can give you countless examples. We've got clients now, you know, that are doing it and they think the more good data we can put, the more, you know, incremental benefit we're going to get. And it's just not the case because it's, it's a law of diminishing returns and investors just get data fatigue. So tell me what matters. Don't tell me about the 15th stat that really doesn't correlate you know, with, with your results. That's really kind of question number two. And then question number three is the commitment question. You know, it's like, how committed are you to do this? Meaning, you know, in order to do a lot of this work, we've got to have buy-in from the top, you know, meaning CEO and the board. And, you know, if you don't have that, the project flounders, and even if we sign a contract, you know, we can find ourselves a month into that, 
you know, kind of in limbo and there's not a lot of direction from the CEO or projects get delayed. And so that's your questions. What's your story? What is the time horizon that you're telling the story? And what support does the story have? Because at the end of the day, that's what we're doing. We're storytellers. So Dan, your, your points are well taken for those publicly traded companies that are effectively and, uh, and repeatedly communicating to Wall Street. But for those business owners out there, if you're not publicly traded, you still have relationships that you've got to establish, maintain, and enhance. And those uh, items that Dan was talking about are critically important at that level as well. Uh, we're going to lose some time here. So I want to ask you one question now. You went from the big corporate where you guided CEOs. Now you are your so-called own CEO. How are you guiding your employees in terms of getting Asbury IR to where it needs to go? Yeah, so communication. And then I have my own advisory network. You know, so it's kind of like a mini board of directors that's not really officially a board of directors, you know, but I have a group of probably five or six people that I talk to on a regular basis, you know, that I bounce ideas off of and then try to be inclusive and include everybody in open conversations, you know, on everything from strategy, you know, to outreach, uh, to really kind of get diversity of thought because, you know, a lot of what we're doing is new. You know, I mean, I'll give you the example of the retail trading phenomenon, you know, that we're currently under. There's a lot of misinformation that's out there. There's a lot of different groups that are driving this. A lot of different demographics, you know, that are using different vehicles and mechanisms, you know, to both transact and to communicate. And the audience, you know, at a traditional retail conference, like a money show, which I'm actually attending this week uh, in Orlando, is very different, you know, from the audience that's on Reddit, that's on Wall Street Bets, that's driving a lot of meme stock craze that's going around uh, as, as well. So Dan, that advisory board that you were referring to, the five or six people, that's outside of Asbury IR. So those are fellow business owners like yourself. Correct. Fellow business owners, you know, nonprofits, you know, just people I've met throughout my career that I've you know, respected on some level or have given me advice or that are that I consider much smarter than me or have had much more success than me. And so I've always been a big believer of you can't be successful unless you surround yourself uh, with successful people. And it doesn't necessarily have to come from within. It can come from around. And a lot of times that's helpful. Even if you're not in the same industry, if you have concepts that are relative to Asbury IR and some of the others in your so-called advisory group, I think the sharing of, of those ideas will enhance your business going forward, no doubt. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite sayings is that n- nobody has a monopoly on good ideas. There you go. Absolutely. So we're about at the end of our time, Dan. Is there anything that we haven't covered in the Q's and the A's that we had gone through at all that you want to make sure our audience knows about? I mean, I think some of the things that you hit on, you know, are very pertinent. And, you know, whether you're a public company or a private company, and at the end of the day, it's like you need to control your message, whether that's to investors or customers, you know, or to associates. You know, we all have multiple stakeholder groups, you know, that we're beholden to. And, you know, I think about when you think about building better businesses, you know, history has shown that, you know, to the extent that you can bring in more stakeholder groups and get more diversity of thought, you know, the better off that your business is going to be, you know, going forward. Very well said. Last but not least, Dan, how can we find out more about you and Asbury IR? So tell us where to go yep. to find yep. so You can obviously find me on LinkedIn, uh, just Dan Aldrich. And then obviously on the, the web, we're just at asburyir.com. And you can see all the information there. If anybody wants to reach out to me, I'm just Dan at Asbury IR. So pretty easy to find and uh, always willing to talk with anybody uh, apart from the Monopoly quote. My other favorite one is there is no wasted meeting. You know, it's so funny. I crack a smile when I close this meeting here, this uh, podcast. I went and looked you up today. You are probably the only person with a profile picture with a mask on. I don't know if that's <laughs> going to change down the road, 
But that's <laughs> it actually already needs to change, to be completely honest. I've just been too lazy. I've got too much going on. This is the seventh week in a row I'll be on the road. So okay. I'm ho- hopefully after that, I'll be able to make some changes. Sounds good. Dan, thanks so much for your time. And audience, thank you for your time and listening with us. And uh, please be sure to join us for another edition of Building Better Businesses. The Building Better Business podcast is the best place to learn how to take your business to the next level. It's no longer enough to earn good profits. You need to develop a network of connections as well as use all types of marketing to your advantage that will put you over the edge. Hosted by me, Steve Eschbach, a financial executive with decades of experience in dealing with businesses and business people, we'll learn how this all comes together. Join me and my expert guests as we delve into the many facets of owning the business and how to become a good, caring business owner. Listen how making a difference in your community can attract all sorts of clientele, which in turn will build you a better business.